0: Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Fallon Forum. We're bringing you some independent voices, civil dialogue, that sort of thing, every week across the political divide. I'm Ed Fallon. I'm your host. We are coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. If you like what we're doing, we could sure use your help. If you visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum, you can see some options there. And if you run a small business or a nonprofit in the Des Moines area, Des Moines Metro, doing good work, consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Market, that Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out the good food difference at Gateway Market and Cafe. Hey, and thanks also to Westrum Optometry located in Des Moines' East Village. Dr. Joel Westrum and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. And the clinic is open from Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. Yeah, thanks to all who support this program, to our sponsors, and to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing our very traditional bumper music. Hey, what have we got for you today? Let's see. Uh, later in the program, Aaron Lehman with the uh, Farmers Union is going to join us. We're going to be getting his take on the farm bill currently being discussed in Washington, D.C. I will also talk with Margaret Klein Solomon, longtime associate of mine, a clinical psychologist who advises people on how to navigate all the bad news we're getting about the uh, climate crisis. We'll also talk about her, uh, her new, well, the, the second edition to her re- reasonably new book, uh, Facing the Climate Emergency. And for our Farm and Food segment, Kathy Burns joins me for our May Garden Q&A. But first, I got a few other things on my mind. Alright, I'm, I'm just going to come out and say this. Uh, Iowa is killing the Gulf of Mexico. You know, if you live in Louisiana, you're probably still celebrating the fact that LSU beat the University of Iowa uh, women's basketball team. Great game. But um, <laughs> what, what you should be really concerned about if you live in Louisiana is what Iowa is doing to the Gulf of Mexico. And that was brought home really powerfully last week in a column by Randy Evans. Randy's the former uh, editor of the Des Moines Register editorial page. Uh, Don't hold that against him. Uh, He's still writing great columns and uh, getting fairly good circulation. And last week he wrote about the, uh, the Iowa Senate eliminating half a million bucks for the Nutrient Research Center. So what's that all about? Well, that center has been the money for that center has been paying for 66 sensors that are put on rivers across the state and those sensors monitor nitrate and phosphorus levels in our waters and why is that important well it kind of tells us how well we're doing and uh to quote directly from randy's uh column quote the sensors have been used to help state officials." And researchers know if improvements to water treatment plants, wetlands, and conservation practices on Iowa farms are reducing water pollution. End quote. And uh, the bottom line is, um, they probably are showing that uh, well, well, they're probably showing that we're not doing a good job. And so instead of like taking that information and doing something productive, yeah, we'll just kind of eliminate them. Then we won't know. We'll be in we'll be we'll be in blissful ignorance. Now, I want to take you back a few years to 2008 when uh, Midwest environmentalists and uh, fishing folk down in the Gulf uh, agree, they, they pressured Midwest states, upper Midwest states, to agree to reduce the uh, flow of nitrates and phosphorus into the Mississippi River basin. And uh, they, we agreed to, to reduce them by 45% because it is an absolute scientific fact that those toxins or what have created the dead zone in the Gulf. And again, the dead zone, it's, at, it's appropriately named because it's pretty much impossible for fish to survive in that huge area of the Gulf. So again, quoting from Randy's column, uh, Sylvia Sechi, a University of Iowa professor and researcher at the Public Policy Center, said, quote, the legislature does not like that the data and the science show our water is getting worse, and so... They are trying to get rid of the data and show other institutions in the state that their funding will be cut if it produces information that they find inconvenient. End quote. That is wrong. This is so badly wrong. It's unconscionable. It's, it's obviously poor public policy. It's not even good politics. Because, you know, even, even Iowans who benefit from the agricultural engine that fuels our state... Are aware that we've got a water quality problem. They're aware that farm chemicals and uh, that nitrates and phosphorus are causing issues not just downstream but here as well. And so this is a, this is politically a bad call. It's policy wise horrible. But the most important thing in that quote from Sylvia. They they're trying to get rid of the data. And show then they want to show other institutions in the state that their funding will be cut if it produces information that they find inconvenient. That is, that is, that is so indicative of this current administration. And again, I, I, from what I've seen, what little I know about the rest of the country, you know, what's happening in Iowa is not that uncommon, and what's happening in a bunch of other rural states. You've got, you've got basically uh, a governor with the help of a supermajority in the Iowa legislature in this case and I know we see that in Montana and North Carolina and many other states they're becoming dictatorial they they are they are squelching information they are they are they are, they're, 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 they're trampling all over trampling all over good policy i mean this is a, pol- a policy initiative that's been in, been in place for for over a decade and this this research is important and they're just gonna eliminate it because they don't like the data coming out of the research. And more to the point, they're sending the message that if you're with a state agency or a department, or even a nonprofit, or an entity involved with one of the state universities, and you get money and you give us bad information, meaning good data that we don't like, consider your funding in jeopardy. That that's that's not that's not how a democracy works. That's not how government works when you're trying to defend. The public interest. That's how dictatorships work, and i, I more and more. I, I think what we're seeing here in Iowa, you can quote me on this. We're seeing the formation of a dictatorship by our governor and her allies in the legislature, who are just, again, just ignoring public opinion, ignoring good policy, and doing things like this, eliminating half a million bucks, which is actually a pretty small amount of money in a what eight billion dollar state budget. Eliminating a, a chunk of money that did some really, really good stuff. So now, here's my advice. If you live in Louisiana, I want you to sue Iowa. Somebody in Louisiana, please sue us. Come on, do it. I, I know, I know this, this show is broadcast on a station, WHIV, in Louisiana. If you're listening on the radio, sue us. Okay. If you're listening to this as a podcast and you've got friends in Louisiana, people who are affected because they've lost their jobs because of, because of the dead zone, uh, because the fishing industry has been been impacted, because water quality is a huge problem, sue us. Because you know what? All the other Midwestern states have stepped up to the plate to some degree, maybe not enough, but way more than Iowa has. And now Iowa is taking another step backwards. So, hey, Louisiana, sue Iowa. I'm with you on this. And again, I know this could be a problem for some of our farmers, and I've got loads of friends across the state who are farmers, and they're all trying to make a living most of them are trying to do it the right way. And you know what? This would, be, this would, this would impact them. If, if Louisiana sued Iowa and you won, it would impact Iowa. It would impact Iowa farmers. But in the long run, those farmers who want to do it the right way, who want to do it in a way that protects the land and the soil and the water and our neighbors, they would find a way to continue to make a living despite that challenge. Related to that, i got two more things on my mind. Second, related to that, food shortages. Okay, so some of the items we're already looking at scarcity for. I mean, the, the list keeps changing, but the list I've noticed is uh, butter. Again, because uh, some of the dairies are really struggling. Oranges. I mean, look at the, uh, the, 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 weather, the weather issues in Florida that have caused issues with the crops there. Corn, uh, yeah, we've had our problems with drought here in the Midwest. Flour, and you can get a tri- attribute part of that problem, of course, to the war in Ukraine. Bread, well, that relates to the flour. Uh, eggs, a big part of the egg problem, of course, is the uh, all the avian flu uh, cases where millions and millions of birds have been destroyed. And again, nowhere more so than in Iowa. And that's affecting egg production, obviously. And uh, I noticed this on a list, so I just thought I'd add it. beer. Uh, Anyway, I'm not sure why beer is being affected, but maybe, maybe because wheat is uh, more expensive, less available, maybe hops are having problems. But you know, a lot of this, yeah, sure, some of it relates to the Ukraine, right? But climate is a huge contributor to this problem. And we will be discussing more about that with uh, Margaret Klein Solomon later in this program. But you know, this, this leads to my frustration with the uh, city of, of Des Moines. I'm, I'm on a roll here today, folks. I've just uh, blasted the state of Iowa, and I'm going to blast the city of Des Moines. You know, a couple years ago, my wife Kathy and I suggested that Des Moines needed a food security task force to begin to figure out how we become food self-reliant as climate change and other problems continue to make food shortages more likely and food more expensive. And uh, the task force, I, I will commend the city council on unanimously supporting establishment of the task force the task force did its work made a bunch of recommendations this is um, almost you know all, we're going to be hitting t- almost two years ago this is last uh, two years ago august this work was completed the city has done nothing with any of the recommendations from the task force the city has done nothing to con- to reconvene the task force as was intended to continue to move things forward and uh, my, my latest frustration is uh You know, Kathy and I working through respective nonprofits. um, You know, I mean, Bold Iowa is focused on stopping fossil fuel expansion and stopping the abuse of eminent domain and also on trying to to prepare communities to address some of the changes that are happening because of climate change and related problems. So, you know, I mean, we've proposed taking a vacant area of the city just north of us and populating it with fruit trees, with nut trees, with uh, juneberry shrubs in lieu of a snow fence, with pollinator habitat. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a space that's been vacant forever. Well, again, I don't, there, there's more of, this, more of this chapter to be written, but as it stands now, apparently there's a problem because somebody wants to put up a big sign saying, Welcome to Des Moines. Okay, so, okay, put up the sign, I don't care. But, you know, you've got all this additional space around there. That, you know, don't plant the trees right in front of the sign. You know, this, all, this, all this space. So why, why you know, why, why continue to drag your feet on opportunities like this? Um, the bottom line is Des Moines has so much vacant land that could be used for food production. Either Either individuals growing food on their properties. And I will say this, kudos to Des Moines for being generous in terms of what it allows people to do on their property regarding food production. So good for that. Uh, also good to good for Des Moines for allowing, uh, uh, for helping to, to plant um, strawberries and a few other things. But again, that needs to continue and grow. If you really want to make a difference in food security, this has to be a huge initiative. This has to be the kind of comparable initiative to what Havana and Cuba did after the Soviet Union collapsed and Cuba's supply of crude oil vanished almost overnight. And they had to switch from a conventional fossil fuel-based big ag system to smaller, sustainable, organic-based production. And it was three years of tough going for them. They did it. You know, I don't know if we could, I don't know if you could, the problem is you can't pull this off overnight. Three years was fast. So if you want to start thinking about food insecurity that's already starting, getting worse, and coming at us in a big way, now is the time. And so, you know, I just don't understand why city officials who seem to understand the importance of a food security task force, who seem to understand the importance of planting strawberries and community gardens, I don't understand why they drag their feet on something so obvious. That's my rant today for that. Uh, that's my, my shot, I guess, at the uh, state government, at the city government, and now, yes, at the U.S. Congress. You thought I'd let them off the hook, didn't you? No, Somalia. Okay, so there appears to be emerging in the U.S. House, at any rate, an anti-war bloc that is very partisan, very bipartisan, rather. You've got you've got uh, the progressive caucus, and you've got Matt Gates and the folks on the right who came together to uh, uh, propose that the uh, the the funding going into Somalia be ended because that war was illegally declared. And I think there's a really strong case to make. I mean, Congress is supposed to be the entity that decides whether or not we go to war. You can't just have a president deciding that on his or her own. But um, that happened, and it's been continuing, and there's been incredible amounts of money spent in Somalia. And so, you know, Matt Gates proposes this resolution. And meanwhile, uh, Democratic reps on the Progressive Caucus... Uh, uh, Pramila Jayapal and uh, Ilhan Omar, uh, the, de- the deputy chairs of that uh, caucus, actually chair and deputy chair, uh, they were among the 102, I think, votes in favor of the uh, resolution. Uh, unfortunately, that's not uh, obviously enough to pass it, but um, it sent a, I think it sent a pretty strong message that, you know, there is a growing coalition of Americans, right and left, and center probably as well, who think that our foreign policy is out of line, that we cannot continue to be the global policeman. We cannot continue to try to expand and maintain an empire that is not doing us any good and is not doing the world any good. And why do I say in the case of Somalia, is it, why is it not doing Somalia any good? Well, uh, who says that? Well, the Pentagon says that. Okay, The, the Pentagon had, um, had a report called The Cost of War, and their February report, their February analysis of the U.S. involvement in Somalia showed that there was a 23% increase in violent activity from 20, 2021 to 2022. I'll read you a quote from that report. Uh, the most striking trend in Somalia over the past year was 133% increase in the level of fatalities linked to militant Islamist group violence, primarily al-Shabaab. Okay, that's from the the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. That's a Defense Department research institution, and you know the, the people we're supposed to be fighting are actually getting more violent, more successful, having you know more doing more damage. So yeah, I mean th- this this makes no sense to continue. So there, I've had my I've had my uh, my my, uh, <laughs> my 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 criticism for the state for the city. And for the federal government, anyway. When we come back from a short break, Margaret Klein Solomon is going to join us. We're going to we're going to lift the conversation up a little bit higher here and talk about uh, her book called "Facing the Climate Emergency." Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats local and international cheeses wines and craft beer gateway's cafe is open for dine-in carry out and delivery service seven days a week stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details gateway market good food great community
1: you're responsible for a lot and it's easy to become overwhelmed to feel helpless even hopeless what's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com.
0: Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-paid basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. I would like to now welcome to the program Margaret Klein-Solomon. She's the founder of Climate Awakening and author of Facing the Climate Emergency how to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. Margaret, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Ed.
0: Hey, so first, um, tell us a little bit about your organization, Climate Awakening.
2: Climate Awakening offers anyone in the world an opportunity to have a conversation about their climate emotions online. Okay. Uh, so when people call in, they go through... a it's like joining a Zoom call, a video call with strangers. And uh, there's a sequence of watching short videos of me explaining something like, you have to approach your climate feelings with compassion because it's really painful stuff and try not to be so self-judgmental and you know, offering kind of guidance like that. But then the bulk of the call is people talking to each other. And the prompt is, how do you feel? about the climate emergency.
0: Mm, okay, and you're getting a, a lot, of, lot of folks interested in that.
2: People, it's, we've had hundreds of calls. Good. People um, People want to talk about how they feel and so many people never get a chance to do that.
0: Mm, okay, and so uh, I think it was last year you wrote a book, Facing the Climate Emergency. Uh, and now you're on a second edition of that book. So why, why the second edition?
2: So the first edition came out in 2019. So three years.
0: Okay, I'm, um, <laughs> time flies.
2: <laughs> but but and a lot has changed um, during those three years. Most notably, uh, COVID mm-hmm. uh, turning our turning our country upside down, including the climate movement. Uh, also, for me personally, a lot has changed. My at my new job uh, as executive director of Climate Emergency Fund. I raise money and we make grants to disruptive activists um, who disrupt sporting events and you know yesterday or this weekend the White House correspondence dinner and um, you know they get into all kinds of good trouble
0: so what what ha- so what, what happened at the White House correspondence dinner
2: they um, they blockaded a few entrances they were not able to uh, shut the dinner down, but they did, um, they did keep some vehicles and out and, uh, celebrities went around them, (laughs) many, several celebrities expressed support. Um, so, and it was the, the, the same group, um, climate defiance based in DC, it's a youth led group. The same group has been, um, uh, shouting down and mm-hmm. ending the speeches of Biden's uh, senior climate advisor and John Podesta. They are really, um, really willing to disrupt normalcy and to get carried out of events and whatnot in order to uh, pressure the Biden administration to stop expanding fossil fuels.
0: Which is what the Biden administration is doing in the Arctic and also in the Gulf. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, now I had not heard about the disruption of the uh, correspondence dinner. Did that make the national news anywhere at all? Yeah, it did. Okay. Um missed
2: it. it yeah, well, it's um gosh, isn't that the way with uh yeah. climate coverage? That's that's why, by the way, the, some of our other grantees threw soup on Van Gogh, right? And that went that went viral. Everybody saw that. And people people said, but why why something like this? Why not? Uh, protest at the fossil fuel infrastructure, and or or even something like the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and the answer is because no one covers it. The same the same activists who threw that soup onto the painting, just five months before that, had been blockading oil infrastructure sites all over the United Kingdom. They had been arrested hundreds of times and shut down multiple sites simultaneously. They'd been doing such amazing work, but that didn't break through. In the right. media, very, very actions very seldom do. So activists have to look yeah. for, let's say, creative well,
0: ways. And I, I know that from our own work back in 2019, uh, in my work with Bold Iowa, we uh, there were about 250 of us statewide who did. We went to, we went to literally hundreds of candidate events, presidential candidate events, mostly Democrats, some Republican, and tried to raise awareness about how urgent climate change was, and how, tried to get their responses. And again, almost zero coverage by the mainstream media. Almost zero coverage. Even, I will yeah. say this, even by, the, even by the more independent media, almost zero coverage. So is the only way to break through that uh, by doing something as extreme as throwing a can of tomato soup on a Van Gogh painting?
2: That's the only thing I've found so far.
0: Hmm. So what, I mean, that says a bunch of things. What, what does it say about the mainstream media?
2: Well, like as Adam McKay portrayed in Don't Look Up, they it's it's just not um, it's not registering yeah. with them. They they fundamentally don't understand the situation because I mean, if they were reporting on climate like the existential emergency it was and being in headline after headline, um, day after day, like they covered COVID uh, for
0: mm-hmm. several months. Most then them,
2: we'd be in a much different situation.
0: I would say they covered COVID to that extent for better, better part of a year. Yeah, it's true. Yeah.
2: Um, but I do want to say activism is disruptive activism is the best way I've found, but there is actually another way, and that is emotionally processing the climate emergency and talking about it. This is a different way. I, I hope that eventually people who do that. Become activists or support the activists, but it is um, it is, I think, a critical process uh, to help wake people up and uh, like live in reality, not in you know mind and, and body and spirit. And so that's really what the book is about: It's so, about helping people enter. Reality.
0: So, have you had what kind of responses have you had from the first edition of the book in terms of uh, it inspiring people to get involved?
2: Well, it's been great. I, I mean, people have said they became an activist because they read the book. Uh, people have said that they have changed their lives because they read this book, and that, I mean. Yeah. That's the whole point. Yeah. So I'm, was very encouraged by that. Um, I, and, um, so yeah, last, the, the book came out last year, uh, excuse me, the first edition came out April of 2019, which was the absolute peak
0: <laughs> right. of COVID. Right, right.
2: So, so I'm hoping that this time we can get that same enthusiastic reader the reader is transformed response. I mean, we had readers buy books by the case, hmm. but they bought 64 books or they bought 10 books or whatever to share. That's this one, one way this book has spread for sure is by word of mouth, but people sharing um, because it's so meaningful yeah. to them. Yeah. So I'm hoping that this time we can combine that viral sharing word mm-hmm. of mouth impact with, uh, actually, you know, a press, a media, that's not entirely focused on COVID. Um, and yeah, really I'm, I'm, I, the point of this book, the whole point is to build the movement yeah. and to support people in their journeys.
0: So beyond, beyond a disruptive action, do you see value in political action in other types of um other types of uh, pressure?
2: Absolutely. It's a social movement ecosystem with uh, many players. But I do think that disruption is really uniquely effective and mm-hmm. just totally called for at this at this late
0: hour now some are going to say that well it's not effective because it just turns people off they see it they think oh that's disgusting i don't support whatever those people do is not something i support Do you are you concerned about that reaction
2: it is definitely something we hear i think it's very overblown um and social science backs this up because for example at election time uh how much protest there has been for a quote-unquote liberal issue in a district increases vote share for Democrats. And that is even if those protests have gone badly wrong, um, like became violent, it still increases the vote share. Now, obviously, Climate Emergency Fund only supports nonviolent civil disobedience. But my point is, even when something is, let's say, a little bit messy, Um, It by increasing the salience of the topic of climate, because that's what these activists are ultimately doing. They're increasing the salience. They're making people think about it by doing that. They increase vote share for the Democratic Party. and, And because when voters go to the polls, they're not voting for for or against climate activists. Right. Right. They're they're sure. choosing between politicians. So I think it's important for activists to know, you know, it's not a popularity contest. Part of the job is uh, absorbing people's you know,
0: negative so, feelings. So, so let, let's envision that uh, this is probably uh, a, a fantasy. But what, what if what if Democrats held the White House, regained the House, regained or expanded uh, the majority in the Senate, maybe even a filibuster proof majority? And made significant inroads into state legislatures and governorships across the country. What have you saw this vast blue wave across the country? I, I'm not, I'm not convinced the Democratic Party is up to up to fixing the climate crisis, but maybe you have more confidence than I do.
2: No, I agree with that. Um, I yeah, I just think the answer. Well, I mean, I, I think basically the answer is. Just more, more movement, more activism, more citizen involvement, and and demands. Because yeah, no, I totally agree, and that's why you know that's why climate defiance is you know strongly pushing back yeah. against Biden. But I mean, this is just totally unacceptable right. what he's doing. But, but yeah, and I, I think there's also you know the idea of. Um, bringing citizens more into governance, such as through people's assemblies, citizens' assemblies. I think there's interesting, um, let's say democracy experiments going on that potentially could be utilized as well. But uh, yeah, no, I- I, So
0: one one thing that we're concerned about here is that um, not just the importance of pushing back against, pushing back against more fossil fuel expansion, but, bracing people, bracing our communities for the inevitability of adaptation. We've, we've got to be able to adapt because things are coming at us. And one um, one thing that I've been saying for a long time is that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, you live on Manhattan. I suspect Manhattan may be underwater at some point, <laughs> along with Florida and a lot of other places. And you have uh, the, the fire situation in the West. You have a lot of places that are going to be unlivable and you know, I, I I've I've often seen that the Midwest is a place where people are going to have to move because they don't have any choices. Do you think that's a, a, a reality?
2: Yeah, I do. I mean, I I uh, I hope that. Um you know, I can still, I'm in Brooklyn. I hope that I can still live here in Brooklyn for <laughs> many years. It's really hard to know exactly what the timeline is going right. to be on this sure. stuff. But yes, absolutely. Migration to the Midwest where there's plentiful fresh water and good agriculture. I mean, yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. Fresh. water. Well, I'd call it contaminated water at this point. <laughs> it's pretty bad shape. So, um, one yeah, in terms of, tactics, strategies, approaches, things that we can do to kind of wake people up. I mean, I mean I, what you said about your book resonates with me. I, I had a lot of people respond to my book saying, hey, this, I had one, one person in Ohio say this inspired us to put solar panels on our roof. I had a young guy in Pittsburgh say, hey, this inspired me to take my writing and shift it to focusing on climate stuff. Um, but one, one thought I've had is, is, is America ready for another huge coast-to-coast march I mean, I'm, I'm harkening back to the days of the Great Peace March in 1986, which did a, a lot to raise awareness about about nuclear testing, about military spending. It had a huge impact. Do you think something like that of that scope would be impactful? Sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm, I call myself a climate maximalist. which means uh, it's it's like on everything on policy you know should we do solar subsidies yes should we ban gas in new infrastructure yes you know like it's and it's always you know more faster and it's the same thing with with activism if you are joining together with other people to demand that policymakers decarbonize as quickly as humanly possible starting by ending the expansion of the fossil fuel infrastructure. I mean, then like, yeah, then that's, that's the movement. Yeah. Like we're, you know, you're part of it and we're in it together.
0: Well, uh, Margaret, I really enjoyed having you on the program as, as always. And I, if, if people were interested in the second edition of your book, facing the climate emergency, how to transform yourself with climate truth. How do people, uh, where do people go to procure copies of that book?
2: So, you can pre-order it on Amazon or bookshop. If you want to read a free chapter and the, as well as the foreword by Adam McKay, you can go to facingtheclimateemergency.org and download one.
0: All right. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate all you're doing. And uh, when we come back from a short break, folks, um, Aaron Lehman's going to join us. He's with the, uh, with the Farmers Union. We're going to be t- getting his take on the farm bill back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, everyone. Good to have you here. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Architecture by Synthesis. Uh, Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, joining me now is uh, Aaron Lehman with the Farmers Union. Hello, Aaron. Welcome to the program.
3: It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad uh, I'm, I'm glad we caught you. I, I assume you're already starting field work and um, probably uh, spending a good bit of time out there
3: we are it's it's we've gotten some field work done but it'd be nice if we had a little more heat to help things pop out of the ground.
0: Yeah, tell me about it. We're having the same struggle here in Des Moines, but uh, hey, so um, Farm Bill, you've been tracking this closely. This is a uh, a, a process that goes on for many months. And uh, a lot of us uh, a lot of folks aren't aware of some of the important things that are in the farm bill, the farm bill. I mean, I know one thing is the SNAP, the SNAP program, formerly food stamps, that's a big part of the farm bill.
3: It is, and in fact, it makes up the by far the largest piece of funding of the farm bill. Uh, comes from food stamps, uh, from SNAP benefits, and uh, and it is a central part of the whole package to get a farm bill passed through
0: Congress. Yeah, and and and, and even to be clear, that that component of the farm bill is even bigger than then direct subsidies, direct payments to farmers, farm insurance, that that doesn't... doesn't That's doesn't...
3: right. It, may, it, it dwarfs uh, traditional farm subsidies, crop insurance subsidies, conservation um, uh, incentives. Uh, by far, the biggest piece is uh, SNAP benefits.
0: Okay. Does that give fodder to some of those who just don't like poor people, say we should cut this stuff?
3: Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think if... Uh, one of the troubling uh just one of the troubling pieces of the iowa legislation uh putting in uh uh, restrictions on snap benefits is that it portends that we're going to have some really ugly battles on farm bill as Mm -hmm. well um and and just you know just to be clear with folks the the iowa legislation um did nothing to save state money. Those, the SNAP benefits are federally funded. Uh, it, but the the, the uh, federal legislation allows states to administer it. Right. So it's actually gonna cost so much more for the state to administer SNAP benefits with these new, uh, new restrictions, uh, but it doesn't save any state money. Uh, and it only saves a very small amount of federal money um, as so it's really is, uh, it's not there to, uh, save resources and, uh, and distribute them more fairly.
0: And there are other states that are going the same direction. Also re- requiring putting in work requirements for SNAP benefits, uh, cutting down the number of people who uh, can re- are eligible to receive them. I mean, I don't know how many states are doing that, but I think it's quite a few.
3: Quite a few are, are giving it a, uh, a try and it, really flies in the face of what we know um, is a real food insecurity issues. SNAP benefits are extremely important to our rural communities. Mm. Uh, They do a better job in rural communities of combating food insecurity and poverty than they do in our urban communities. And in addition to that, all those SNAP benefits help our farmers who are growing the food that get get distributed to folks who who need a, a hand up. So it's really counterproductive to, to pit uh, urban versus rural voters uh, and, and urban versus rural folks uh, on SNAP benefits. It, it's really important to our rural communities uh, as, as well as our urban, and sp- urban folks.
0: And speaking of food, much of, much of agriculture is focused on producing uh, crops that are used for fuel, uh, fiber, uh, feed for animals as opposed to food for people. And, um, and then a bunch, a bunch of it for export as well. I mean, in Iowa, what, how much, what percentage of our hog, hog production is shipped overseas? So, uh, to what extent do you think the Farm Bill will begin to do more to encourage direct marketing of local foods? Uh, yeah. I mean, help helping people, helping farmers maybe who want to get into that, but can't because of the current setup of subsidies and insurance.
3: Yeah, it's we def definitely. Uh, see the need to encourage more local and regional food production, that food that connects our farmers with our communities. Uh, and that is, um, the farm bill itself, um, has, uh, led to production that, uh, um, has led us away from those systems over the past 30 or 40 years, right. which is really unfortunate. Um, we, we, uh earlier versions of the farm bill uh contain provisions in there which encourage diversified production um and uh the brakes have been taken off of the system uh and it and as a result it just careens from side to side uh and uh encourages overproduction i uh, incur uh, at times encourages boom and bust cycles uh and it really should be a stabilizing force for agriculture um, and uh, even the commodity side of agriculture, uh, which goes for, as you said, for feed, for export, uh, and uh, for fuel.
0: So, and why, why do you suppose that years ago, uh, the uh, components of the farm bill that supported local food production were removed? Was that at the behest of big agriculture?
3: Well, it certainly was. Uh, and, and those diversified operations used to have a leg up in that farm policy, uh, because it, in order to um, start a factory livestock farm, for instance, um, you would have to purchase feed. Um, but the but the folks who were growing their own livestock, feeding that livestock with their own crops, uh, had an advantage. Um, by taking off uh, those uh, those provisions, it encourages overproduction. It encourages those who purchase feed uh, to buy it at a lower price than farmers can actually grow it. Mm. Uh, and therefore, it encourages uh, industrialized production of, of uh, agriculture and, and, and mm. livestock in particular. Uh, rather than encouraging those diversified operations, uh, which are growing the feed for their own livestock on their own farms.
0: So in mentioning uh, confined animal feeding operations, uh, are there any uh, proposals that might be worked into the Farm Bill that might address some of the concerns that people have about the expansion of large confinements in terms of the the impact they have on fairness in the market, but also on, on water quality, on air quality? Any any attempt to try to address some of those concerns?
3: Yeah, absolutely. One of the big priorities of the Farmers Union is to in, have a competition title in the Farm Bill. Um, that competition title would ensure that livestock markets, for instance, are transparent and fair, uh, so that they're, those who are uh, connected to the, the packers, uh, large, large farms connected to the packers, don't have a leg up in our markets. Um, but uh, that transparency and fairness could be returned to those markets. So having a competition title is extremely important. And then there are other pieces as well. We wanna make sure that our conservation programs, our incentive voluntary conservation programs, actually go to those folks who are going above and beyond what the minimum parts of the law are um, in order to enhance um, the conservation practices on the farm. Unfortunately, some of those conservation programs are tapped into by factory farms that are simply just putting the money to, so that they can comply with the m- very minimal uh, parts of, uh, of, uh, of the pollution control laws that they have to apply for. Um, so targeting those benefits to family-sized farms is really important as well.
0: And do you think some of the uh, conservation provisions we've seen work in, you know, over the last several decades um, you know, buffer strips, uh, terracing, um, grass waterways. Will those are those likely to stay in the next generation of the farm bill?
3: There, we we think that there is funding there. One of the big questions about this farm bill in particular is how are we going to treat some of the investments that were made in the Inflation Reduction Act? You know, some of the largest single investments in conservation. Ah, uh, since the Dust Bowl came a part of the Inflation Reduction Act, um, some of the very good parts of the Inflation Reduction Act. How are those going to get treated? Are those uh,
0: are going are they going to
3: add to the efforts we've already done, or are they just going to get swapped
0: out? So, give us a, um, give us an example of some of those provisions.
3: Yeah, so it, it's some of those things that you you mentioned, uh, like the Conservation Stewardship Program, uh, a working lands conservation program, help with cover crops uh uh diversified rotations uh, that type of thing um are very essential uh to our conservation efforts okay uh and if they they're part of farm bill funding um uh in uh environmental um incentive programs uh have some place in that as well. But th- some of those environmental incentive programs have been opened up mm. uh, to, uh, to large factory farms, and, and th- that simply shouldn't be used for mm. that purpose.
0: Now, I, uh, a, a, a term I'm just coming to, I just became familiar with, and you probably know, know it better than I, climate smart. Uh, is there some discussion of um, making some provisions of the farm bill, or maybe maybe even most of it, Compatible with the things we're learning about the changing climate.
3: Yeah, it there there is, but that's a real big question about how how large a steps this farm bill will take in that regard, um, and uh, you know. This might get into some of the inside politics of it, but where where does that fit into some of the climate smart provisions that were also in the Inflation Reduction Act? Uh, and we just simply don't know yet. Now, uh, one, We're a little bit too early in the process to, to read the tea leaves on that
0: one. Now, one provision in the Inflation Reduction Act that was disguised as a climate solution, but right. uh, I think most of us realize it's not, was the... Uh, the tax credits for building carbon dioxide pipelines. And Mm -hmm. as you, I'm sure you're well aware, this has become a huge controversy across the upper Midwest. I mean, in Iowa alone, um, let's see, uh, almost 2,000 miles of farmland would be impacted by three different companies wanting to build these pipelines to cash in on these tax credits. Again, the smart smart analysis says that these are not going to solve the climate problem in any way, shape, or form. They might even make it worse. So, to what extent right. is carbon sequestration likely to be addressed in the farm bill in a way that uh, is actually helpful and not um, just another disguised, uh, you know, pot of money for a few big business interests?
3: Yeah, we, that's that's one of the huge remaining questions, and and this this question even popped up in in some of the recent uh, debt ceiling discussions, and and. Uh, because there was an attempt to claw away some of those tax credits that so, so many of us thought were inappropriately applied, um, but uh, didn't quite get there uh, in those discussions. But. Uh, the climate-related farm bill questions is one of the biggest questions we have remaining about how mm-hmm. this process is going to go, mm-hmm. because it could have a very integral piece of the farm bill, or the, the 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 big players in the farm bill discussion could could say that's going to be on a different um, plate than the farm bill plate.
0: Mm. Too early to tell, but it's a big, Too- a big element of conversation, it sounds like.
3: It it definitely is. And, and, you know, I think what we have to remember is that uh, in Iowa, we have a huge piece in Farm Bill deliberations. Uh, Farm bills go through the ag committees in the House and the Senate. And uh, we have two members of the Senate who are on the AG committee and we have two members of the House who are on the AG committee. We are the only state that have multiple members of Congress in both the House and the Senate sitting on the AG committee. Yeah. Uh, so it's an extremely uh, big uh, Iowa footprint on this legislation.
0: And that said related to an earlier conversation in this program, what um the the amount of money, uh, that was spent in Iowa to try to address uh, re, you know, limiting nutrients, uh, phosphorus and nitrogen, running into the water. Uh, that was just uh, zone, you know, line, lined out by the Republicans at the State House. You know, the $500,000 to the Nutrient re- Research Center, gone. And so Iowa's contribution to expanding the dead zone is likely to continue. Is there anything the Farm Bill could do or might do or should do Relevant to trying to bring the state of Iowa into, you know, into compatibility with our other midwestern neighbors to minimize the impact of our soil loss on the Gulf.
3: Yeah, and you know, so many of the programs that are important to address those issues uh, have are really what we call under, uh, subscribed, Right, so many people are in line to get uh, these practices on their farm, but yet the, the money just isn't there. Yeah. And this was gonna be corrected. Uh, in uh, Large steps were being taken to correct that through the Inflation Reduction Act, but we, we simply don't have an, uh, a large enough um, impact mm-hmm. with these programs, yeah. even on the farmer demand side. And that's without the investments we need in order to make sure that these investments have the biggest impact on the ground as well. So um, we've got a long ways to go to um, get to the farmer demand for these programs.
0: Well, Aaron, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and I hope you'll keep us posted as the farm bill continues to roll forward. Thank you.
3: It's great to be here. Thank you so much.
0: Folks, we've been talking with Aaron Lehman with the Iowa Farmers Union. When we come back from a short break, uh, Kathy Burns is going to join me. For our May Garden Q&A session, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com.
1: At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766.
0: Hey, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks to our sponsors, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out The Good Food Difference at Gateway Market and Cafe. All right, Kathy Burns is with me, and it's time for our monthly garden Q&A. Kathy, what have we got?
1: Uh, it's questions about what can we put in the ground now because it's Everything. been a very late, <laughs> a very late spring. Yes. Uh, we're in central Iowa, of course. People are asking, uh, for instance, can I put my tomato plants in yet? We put mm-hmm. our, some of ours in, so it yeah, depends. Yeah,
0: and it's, they're doing well. They've been in about a week. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you, if you want to wait on that, I mean, I don't know what it's like in the rest of the Midwest, but here it's been unusually cold. And windy. And windy, really windy.
1: I would say... Um, if your plants are nice and strong, and if they are completely hardened off, meaning you have exposed them gradually to the outside elements throughout the course of five to seven days increasing the time out each day, they they may be fine. Except for the next, you know, mm. uh, just, just watch the temperatures. If it, if it starts to get anywhere below 40, uh, maybe not put them out. Just I mean, so.
0: hardening off is about giving them enough sun, but also enough wind. Mm-hmm. So, They've got like to build said, their well, little muscles. Wind has been a problem here. What else we got?
1: Uh, somebody had, speaking of tomatoes, uh, sh- a picture of some yellow spotty places on their tomato leaves. And they were asking kind of what that was. You could see that in the clear plastic cup. It uh, looks like they might be a little bit root bound. Um, we had something similar, but I don't think it was quite this. Yeah,
0: I, I'm looking at that photograph and I'm not seeing. What we had was a, an iron deficiency. Mm-hmm. It was a, a slight browning of the leaves, but it, patches more. Patches of brown. Spots. Yeah, yeah. It, it was definitely not a blight, not a fungus. It definitely wasn't an overwatering thing, and this, to me, looks more like blight or maybe an overwatering problem.
1: I think the answer is most of the plants that we have now that are still seedlings want to be where they belong, which is in the ground. So, if people can get those plants in the ground soon, um, it will alleviate the watering problem. For ours, as uh, uh, only a few days after we put our tomato plants in the ground, the yellow patches, the yellowish brown patches, cleared up, meaning. Whatever nutrient they were still needing, in this case it would be iron, uh, they were getting from the full soil mm-hmm. that they were in.
0: Right.
1: Um, the next question is uh, is an, is more like a, a comment. Somebody said they had an aphid problem in a potted plant. And then the problem disappeared, and they show a picture of a little toad in their <laughs> pot that maybe had dug a hole and was living there, and, of course, will eat aphids. And that was yeah. that was very nice. We want some of those, or toads or frogs. Yeah, or
0: they, I've heard of that. I've heard of people bringing toads into their garden mm-hmm. and seeing a, 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 a dramatic decline in the insect population.
1: Right. Right.
0: So let's get us get ourselves some toads, Kathy. Let's do it, and, and they un- need a
1: moist spot. Yeah, they, they, they need the most moist soil. Sure.
0: Yeah, and unlike what I was told as a kid, you will not get warts from a toad.
1: No, but they might pee on you. Yeah, yeah. Which we, I had a lot of. You know, toads do that to me when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, somebody's asking if it's too late to plant potatoes. I would say no, still go for it. Ed might have a different answer.
0: Well, yeah, you know, it's pushing it. I'd say go for it, but. Again again it depends on where you're at but here, Central Iowa, we've had a real problem with heat mm-hmm. and sunlight too much mm-hmm. too much harsh sun and too much heat have been a problem and we're going to try to rig up a, a, a row cover shade mm-hmm. barrier to use on the on the on the brightest days so maybe that will help This is
1: a good year when you if you're still putting your potatoes in to dig that little trench where you plant them, Nicely, because you want to, to be able to pile up more soil to protect those stems as the potato grows. So you want to build yeah. up the soil around them to hold them up and protect them uh, from the harsh effects of the sun as they, as they get big.
0: And the wind. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Somebody asked if they can still put broccoli, cauliflower, and pea seeds in, especially not the broccoli and cauliflower that you need to go get seedlings for. Maybe you can put peas in still, I think.
0: I'd say it's pushing it because peas like it cold, and you know, by the time they get in the ground, it'll be another couple of weeks before they're really starting to get up. And we're talking about summertime temps, you know. I'd say save them for the fall and plant them in your fall garden.
1: I would split the difference and say maybe <laughs> put half half your seeds in now and save the other half.
0: Can Our we call bulbs. that split peas?
1: That, <laughs> <laughs> split pea soup. Um, someone shows a photo of uh, what I would call walking onions. They're calling them winter onions. They got them as a gift, and they're wondering if they will form little bulbs underneath and and when they need to be split. And it's sort of the opposite of that. Yeah. They form the bulbs when they go to seed on the tops of those those long stems of the onion and. Um,
0: And they're so handy. I mean, they they, they come at a time when you're probably out of any onions you froze or dried for Mm -hmm. the winter, and your new onion crop hasn't come in yet.
1: Yep, yep, they're really nice. Um, uh, People are asking if they can sow bean and squash seedlings, if they can put their bean and squash seedlings in...
0: Sure, but why would you want to when you can just direct sow them? Direct sow those. Yeah, direct sow those, All beans right. and squash. Hey, uh, thanks for joining us, Kathy, and thanks to our guests today, Margaret Klein-Solomon and Aaron Lehman, and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Determan, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry, Western Optometry, Architecture by Synthesis and Story County Veterinary Clinic. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. Remember, your support for this program matters a lot, so go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. Thanks again, and we will be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.